Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So listen, thanks a million uh, for you all coming tonight. Um, my name's Joe Humphreys, and uh, just to explain, I suppose tonight's debate may have started, it had its genesis two years ago for World Philosophy Day. We started a little column in the Irish Times called Unthinkable uh, as a small gesture towards public philosophising. Uh, within the pages of the Irish Times, um, World Philosophy Day, by the way, is the third Thursday of November, in case you want to put it in your diary, along with Christmas and Easter and maybe Darwin Day, if so inclined. Uh, it's coming up again soon. Um, when, when we started the column, I, I was told by one colleague that it would be the shortest series ever in the Irish Times because there's no intellectuals in Ireland and I'd soon run out of people to interview. Uh, but I, uh, two years on, uh, glad to say it's still going strong. We've, we've had contributions for over 70 uh, columnists or, or individuals, scientists, philosophers, um, who have uh, we've put together into this book, which we're launching tonight, um, uh, as a kind of uh, milestone in what's an ongoing project um, from the Irish Times' point of view in terms of uh, covering this whole area of ideas and philosophy and giving light to ideas that maybe wouldn't get an airing otherwise in the mainstream media. Um, I suppose the book itself uh, came partly to challenge that, or the column itself came partly to challenge that notion that Irish people do literature, we do culture, creative arts, but we don't do philosophy, we don't do... Uh, um, thinking that well, and that that was part of the part of the aim was to showcase uh, intellectuals, academics, people who are uh, thinking radically in Irish society, um, in academia, in, in society more generally, people who often aren't listened to. Um, another another kind of motivation was it was coming out of a period uh, in Irish society where we've had an awful lot of upheaval around. Um, social and, and economic matters and our own financial crisis here and, and a tendency or a feeling that we're falling back to the same ways of thinking, the same uh, sort of patterns of behaviour even that got us into trouble in the first place economically. Uh, this sort of short, short-termism and, and maybe isol- isolationist mindset in Ireland where very often in public debate we see things purely through an Irish eyes, whether it's climate change or um, tax uh, justice or, or even migration currently we tend to uh, look at it in very exclusive terms rather than uh, global or international terms. Um, and within these sort of debates, at least I, I felt within, uh, personally and, and from a, as an observ- observer of debates, there's often a, a practicality that kicks in, very often in any discussion around policy, around ideas, and this sort of inner voice of practicality can s- snuff out debate at source and ideas at source. Um, reformers in society are told to be realistic. Uh, but I love a quote from the Brazilian philosopher Roberto Unger, who points out that a proposal is realistic to the extent that it approaches what already exists. And um, there's, a, there's a sense there uh, that actually I, I want to thank, before I get into that, I want to thank a couple of people first. Now, I'll thank a few at the end of, of the event tonight. But one of the people to thank is President Michael D. Higgins, who uh, kindly allowed us to use a um, contributor to the book by way of a, a speech that he, he gave and, and we edited for the book 
um, who addressed this whole issue of, uh, as part of his ethics initiative, which he ran for last year, um, trying to introduce ethical discussion uh, beyond the, the, the norm within, within the mainstream media, and the mainstream media has to ha hold up its hands on this as well. Uh, President Higgins writes in the book that the current crisis calls for an interrogation or a vision of what it is to be human and the conception of human relations that animate us as a society. The risk is that we, if we do not tackle the assumptions that have inflicted such deep injuries on our moral imaginations, we will resile to a position of business as usual. We must not then miss this opportunity to seek together a new set of principles by which we might live ethically as a society. End quote. So I'll jump on to tonight's debate. Tonight we're talking about an issue, one of those issues that is uh, debated very often within narrow confines, um, whether science and religion are in conflict. Um, it's an age-old question. Uh, philosophers, uh, theologians down the ages have, t have debated this particular question. In recent times, it's swung one way and the other. One, one could say the um, atheistic argument or the, uh, has g gained ground in recent times. Prominent uh, authors and, and campaigners like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris have uh, defined the debate very often in Western society to some degree, and particularly around new media and social media, how uh, these, these discussions take place. Um, at the same time, there's, there's, there's a, a fight back, or you can see swings the other direction. And I, and I read a headline in, in Time magazine last week, which says, and I quote, the Pope makes peace between science and faith. And when I saw that, I thought maybe this, this debate was a week too late. The matter had been settled. Uh, but actually, uh, what I was referring to was the fact that during uh, his visit to the United States, he, I suppose, held out an olive branch, or he spoke about how um, people of faith needed to pay more attention to science, particularly around climate change, and, and actually adhere to the science <coughs> in terms of adjusting doctrine and, uh, and adjusting uh, their moral outlook as well. Um, last year, actually, Pope Francis went even further, you might say, he said, theories of evolution and the Big Bang are real. He said, God is not a magician with a magic wand. That's a direct quote now. I'm not sure if that's a translation. But uh, it's the sort of sentiment you might hear from a, an atheist very often. So it does, uh, this, sort of, this, this cyclical um, type of argument is, is present. And I, I guess we might hear more from our speakers on that shortly. So... Um, I'm going to go straight in to introduce each one by one rather than introducing the four uh, altogether. So we're going to start with each speaker. Um, everyone, they're going to get 10 minutes each to address the question. I suppose we have a line up here of uh, largely one saying yes to this question, one saying no, and, one, and two in between, although maybe more a no within those latter two. Uh, but there's a mixture of views within that, um, and, and they're you know, approaching the question in different ways as well. Uh, all the speakers have 10 minutes initially to have some opening comments about this, and then we're going to go into a discussion here on the stage, and then we'll throw it open for questions from the audience. And uh, I'm sure don't be afraid to ask questions when we reach that stage. So we're hoping to finish up by half eight. Um, so I'm going to start with um, William Revel, who uh, is Emeritus Professor of Biochemistry and Public Awareness and Science Officer at University College Cork, and known, I'm sure, to Irish Times readers also as a science columnist with us. Um, today, he was having a swipe at neuroscience, 
uh, claim it ignored research on the brain, and we also have a neuroscientist on the panel. So, uh, but I've asked them to leave that particular debate until outside afterwards. Um, uh, William's also Catholic, and he's spoken about the intersection of science and religion at various events, including the 2012 Eucharistic Congress. And I think it's fair to say, William, you're firmly on the no side on this one. William. Uh, yeah, thank you, Joe. Um, I was under the impression uh, we would, uh, I would be speaking from a, at a podium, and so I wrote a script. And um, I'm not flexible enough to ad-lib everything now, so I'm going to, to read it um, uh, to you, but um, I'm not a, an automaton either. So, um, are science and religion uh, necessarily in conflict? Now, as you know, uh, I am a scientist, and I accept everything that science has discovered and that science will discover. But I'm also a Christian, <clears throat> and when I speak about religion uh, tonight, I'll be essentially referring to Christianity. So I'll start off by stating plainly that it is my belief that science and religion occupy separate domains, and there is no necessary conflict between science and religion once each remains in its own domain. Uh, I personally believe science and religion complement each other, and together allow us to see a bigger picture of the uh, whole of reality than science alone would allow us to see. Now, there is no doubt that science is spectacularly successful in its own domain, but it purchases this great power by severely narrowing its scope of operations. The function of science is to provide natural explanations for how the natural world works, the natural material world. But science has nothing to say about some of the most important things in our lives, such as whether there is meaning, value, and purpose present in what is happening. And of particular importance for the debate tonight, uh, science neither confirms nor denies the supernatural. Science simply has nothing to say about the supernatural. Religion, on the other hand, uh, deals with many of the areas that science ignores. Religion deals with our intrinsic value as humans, with our purpose in life, and with how to live a good life, a good moral life. But religion has no competence to explain how the natural world works. That's the domain of science. In pre-scientific times, religion did undertake to explain certain aspects of the natural world. For example, the Old Testament describes how the world was created in seven days. But these pre-scientific explanations contradict modern uh, scientific evidence and understanding and are now to be understood simply as tales with a moral message. Materialism is the philosophy that nothing exists except matter and energy. And if materialism is true, then everything must be explicable in, in material terms. Many people think that in order to be a scientist, you must also be a materialist. That's not true. It's not necessary to be a materialist to be a scientist. But 40% of scientists believe in God. And many of the greatest scientists who ever lived were Christians. Although science is materialistic in its method, and scientific experiments must be planned and uh, carried out to search for material explanations only, science is not materialistic in its philosophy. Science and religion have separate roles, and neither should interfere in the, in the other's domain. When either science or religion strays into the domain of the other and makes assertions there, conflict will automatically arise. That's what happened in the Galileo affair, and today it happens when fundamentalist Christian 
Groups, for example, insist on a literal interpretation of stories in the Bible. But conflict also arises when philosophically materialistic scientists declare, for example, that all questions that don't have a scientific answer are invalid questions. Questions like, why is there a material universe at all rather than nothing? Or when they make statements such as that made by the chemist Peter Atkins, science is omnipotent, we will be able to explain everything through science. But you, hang on, you might say. Doesn't Christianity make claims that contradict our scientific understanding of the world, such as the miracles described in the New Testament? Is that not a conflict between science and religion? And should educated Christians not reject such claims just as they reject the literal interpretation of biblical accounts of creation in seven days and of Adam and Eve? But I don't believe that there is a conflict here because... <clears throat> As I already said, science doesn't deny that supernatural events can happen. And science has not specifically disproved these miracles I'm talking about in the New Testament, as it has disproved the creation in seven days story and the Adam and Eve account. But I want to tease out the question of miracles a little bit more. Most of the New Testament miracle stories uh, are concerning healing the sick, and they could have a natural psychosomatic explanation. Some people have natural healing powers, and Jesus Christ could have been extraordinary in that regard. But other miracle stories don't stand a natural, can't be explained naturally like that. But as a Christian, I only feel compelled to stand over the resurrection miracle. And to die and to come back to, to, to life clearly violates known scientific laws. And a rational God would not likely overrule the scientific rules governing his creation. Christianity interprets miracles as signs that reveal God's character and plans. The purpose of the resurrection was to send a critically important message that couldn't be sent in any other way. Christians believe Jesus Christ was God incarnated in human form. Christ taught the full Christian philosophy of life and he died by crucifixion, as you know. His resurrection was required in order to demonstrate the divinity of Christ and to bolster the courage of the disciples so they would carry on spreading the message of Christ. Without the resurrection, we would only remember Christianity today as an obscure Jewish sect that flickered briefly and died out um, 2,000 years ago. Biblical scholars agree that the New Testament story of the resurrection is internally consistent and credible. It doesn't bear signs of fabrication, and the witnesses genuinely seem to believe that they met the risen Christ. But, of course, that in itself doesn't prove the case. And in order to believe in the resurrection, you have to go beyond that evidence to make an act of faith. But it's a faith that is informed by evidence. The resurrection is clearly a supernatural event, but the supernatural is not philosophically denied by science. So I feel I can accept the resurrection without contradicting my belief in science. But, of course, if science ever disproved the resurrection, as it has disproved the creation in seven days story and the Adam and Eve story, I would have to stop believing in the resurrection. Science doesn't deal with concepts such as value, purpose, ethics, beauty, and so on. But these vitally important areas are what give meaning and flavor and joy in life to most people. A scientific description of the world, therefore, while immensely powerful in its own terms, 
cannot possibly describe the whole picture of the reality we live. We need other explanations in addition to the scientific. Explanations that don't contradict the scientific explanation and that are compatible with it. And Christianity would claim that it can provide this complementary explanation. Science has shown that the physical world is able to make itself, it's able to construct itself. And it has shown how the universe has bootstrapped its way from an explosion of pure energy about 13 billion years ago up to the complex variety that we see today. But scientific consideration of the world raises certain questions that science itself is unable to answer, and to which, going beyond science, one possible and not unreasonable answer is God. These questions include, why is the world comprehensible through mathematics? Why is the basic fabric of the world so exquisitely fine-tuned tuned to allow life to arise and to, and to flourish? And why is the basic fabric of the universe so amazingly fruitful? Christians believe that God created the world, that we're made in God's image, and that our purpose in life is to grow in wisdom and love by following the teachings of Christ. This answers the question of why is there something rather than nothing? It explains how our minds can understand the mind of the Creator through mathematics. It explains why the basic fabric of the world is so fruitful. It explains our ethical intimations of, about good and evil. These would reflect the um, <clears throat> God's good and perfect will. Um, it explains our appreciation of beauty as a reflection of God's joy in creation. It explains the personal spiritual experiences reported by so many people. These would be encounters with the hidden presence of God, and so on. This religious interpretation, while fully accepting science's explanation of the natural world, goes beyond that to explain a bigger picture. This religious explanation, together with science, explains all the different aspects of our one-world experience. It explains more than science alone. Now, John Polkinghorne, of whom you may have heard, the mathematical physicist and Anglican theologian, illustrates in a nice little story how different explanations expand our understanding and illuminate the bigger picture. Consider a kettle of boiling water on a gas ring. Why is the water boiling? The scientific explanation is that the energy of the gas flame is absorbed by the water, causing the water molecules to move about so fast that they can overcome the attraction they have for each other in the water phase and jump up into the gas phase as steam. And the other explanation for why the kettle is boiling is that I want to make a cup of tea. Now, both explanations, one is, a, is describing the process of the boiling and the other is describing the agency. Uh, both explanations are correct. Both are compatible with each other. But in order to understand the whole picture, you need both explanations. And in the general bigger picture of the world, God is the agent and the evolving natural world described by science and the evolving social, cultural, and religious world, religion world, is the process. So in summary, there is no conflict between science and religion, and both are necessary if we are to understand the full picture of reality. Thank you.
Thank you, William. That's terrific. Um, well, we're going to go to uh, Kevin next, actually, just to get the, the firm yes position, because we've got a firm no there, and, and uh, to take a slightly out of sequence on our, on our lineup here. But Kevin, uh, to explain, is assistant professor at the Department of Genetics here at Trinity and a blogger uh, at wiringthebrain.com. Um, his main research examines how genes impact on how our brains develop, and particularly the links between genes and altered brain wiring conditions, such as schizophrenia and epilepsy. He's a keen user of social media, Twitter, and through his blog explores philosophical themes, including the nature of human consciousness, the nature of free will, and whether, for example, we are androids or automatons. Uh, so, Kevin, um, we'll take it up from here. Great. Well, um, thanks very much. I don't know if this is, is on, is it? Yeah? I think it's okay. Oh, there we go. Okay, so, um, well, thanks, William, for that. Um, I think the, the first thing to say when considering whether science and religion are in conflict with each other is that the, the main thing that any particular religion is in conflict with is the other 4,200 religions that exist. So I'm not going to confine my uh, remarks to Christianity because I think it's important to consider um, all of those religions. And if you're um, appealing to any particular religious explanation for something in the world, whether you consider it to be natural or supernatural, then there's a certain arbitrariness to picking one of those explanations out of those 4,200 that I think um, should be uh, justifiable or justified. So, uh, but in, in terms of the question tonight, whether science conflicts with religion, I agree with, um, with William actually on many of the points that he's made in terms of the, this almost trivial sort of point that religious claims that are, that, that are factual claims about the nature of the physical universe are often directly refuted by science. And we have any, any number of those. Uh, we heard about the, the Earth being created in, in seven days. You can talk about whether it's carried on the back of four elephants on the back of a, an enormous turtle that floats through space, whether it was populated by Xenu of the Galactic Federation 75 million years ago, uh, and so on and so on. So every, every religion has some stories, some mythologies like that, creation myths, um, stories about where humans come from that oftentimes have been directly refuted by science. And I think there's generally three responses to that. One is to kill the heretics uh, or imprison them and force them to recant. Thankfully, that's less popular uh, now than it used to be, for my sake. Um, the other is to double down. So when challenged, to basically say, uh, I'm not going to accept science anymore. I'm going to completely reject science. And that's what happened with many uh, fundamentalist religions that declare, in this case, for, for Christianity, for example, the literal truth of, of the Bible and just admit no evidence from science whatsoever. And that sort of backs them into a corner, although it's, it's a position that actually you can kind of respect in that it, it, it sticks with the, the courage of their convictions, at least. Um, the more popular move is, is a, a cautious retreat from whatever those particular claims are. And you may say, you know, the religion may concede that, okay, that part of the scripture was metaphorical and, uh, or an allegory. It's not meant to be taken literally. The, the world wasn't really created in seven days or God didn't really create, uh, you know, all the animals a, a, at the same time. But, well, we know that, you know, even if, even if evolution happened, that that God directed it. So it's a, it's a retreat to a claim that has not yet been refuted by science. Then in the face of, of evidence, for example, that natural selection can perfectly well explain how evolution could happen, then there's a further retreat that, well, okay, so God didn't direct it actively, but, but he started it off 
um, you know, he started the, the ball rolling, or he, um, even if he didn't create the universe in the Big Bang, if, even if we know universes can, can wink in and out of existence all the time, at least he made the, the conditions in this universe uh, fine-tuned so precisely exactly for the purpose that we would come into being. So there's a, 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 a retreat from particular claims to more and more general claims. And that really leads to this, what's been called the god of the gaps. So anywhere that science has not yet made an explanation, well, we can call that god, and we can supply uh, a supernatural explanation to that. Now, from my perspective, a supernatural explanation is not an explanation at all. It's just a label. It's something we don't understand. We say God did it. That doesn't explain anything. We have to explain what God is, where God came from, um, and so on. So, but in, in a sense, those are, are uh, trivial surface conflicts, if you like. And what William talked about was a more fundamental one, whether there's really a, a, a deep philosophical conflict between religion and science. And I would argue that there is. And I think the, um, the, there's very clear uh, differences in religious thinking and scientific thinking. And there's a number of, of um, aspects to that. The first of them is the most obvious and probably the deepest one, which is the reasons that you have for believing in something. And as we, we heard from William, the reasons for believing in, in any particular religious claims generally are an act of faith. You're believing in them precisely in spite of the lack of evidence to support them, for the most part. And in fact, that faith is raised to the level of a virtue. Okay? It's part of the package of religion that it's a virtuous thing to believe something without any obvious um, evidence that that's actually the case. Whereas, of course, the scientific uh, method is the polar opposite of that. So the scientific method is the single most powerful, most important invention that humanity has ever made. And, and it was an invention. It's not an obvious thing. The, the ancient Greeks, for example, didn't understand the scientific method. It took 1,500 years before people started to actually think about how we can use science to understand the world. And the scientific method works by observation and hypothesis, which is true for many aspects of, of philosophy and theology, but it goes further than that to make predictions. So you have a hypothesis. That hypothesis makes some further predictions about things you have not yet observed, and then you design an experiment precisely to test those hypotheses and determine what's the actual truth of the matter then you refine your hypotheses and you repeat. And by that method, we incrementally increase our knowledge of the world and our understanding of the world in a way that's been extraordinarily successful um, over the years. And so some people will say, well, you know, science is just another belief system. If I say I believe in science, they say, well, that's no different from having faith and, and believing in religion. It is different. So that hinges on two very different meanings of the word belief. In the, in the case of, of religion, it's having faith in spite of the absence of evidence. In the case of science, it's having confidence in that method because it works, because that's the method that we've used to control our world. That's the method that generates new medicines. It's the method that lets us send a, a spaceship 15 million miles over 10 years to land on a comet that's traveling at 184,000 miles per second, per hour. Um, so it's, 
it's a very fundamentally different uh, reason for believing in things, whether you have evidence or whether you have faith. Um, the other aspects that are different about science are that arguments from authority are not permitted. It doesn't matter if you have a Nobel Prize. If your theory doesn't uh, stand up to the evidence, then people won't believe you. Uh, doctrine and dogma are not sacred. Okay? If, if some new finding comes along that, that overturns our beliefs, well, then they get overturned, and the science is, is changed. The other thing is that there, there's a, a comfortableness with uncertainty. With uncert this is ignorance, and uncertainty is where scientists uh, make their living. So it's perfectly acceptable in science to not know something, to accept that you don't yet know something, and to just live with that fact. Whereas religion tends to fill in those <laughs> gaps and explain them by reference to or appeal to some kind of a supernatural um, explanation. The final one is precision. So scientific hypotheses to be useful and to be considered scientific must be precise. They must say something that actually makes some testable predictions, otherwise it's not really a scientific hypothesis. Whereas religion, more and more as it retreats from particular factual claims, religious claims tend to become more abstract, more vague, uh, even even actually incomprehensible to the point where many people, if you ask them, even if they're of devout believers, if you ask them what it is they actually believe in and drill down into the nature of their beliefs, they don't necessarily even understand what it is they, they necessarily are supposed to be believing uh, in, in certain detail. And that, I think, is actually selected for. If you look across all the religions that exist and all the ones that have existed and have winked out of existence... Part of the, ones, the reason that, that ones may have gone out of existence is because they're too precise. Their claims are too specific, and they're too obviously refutable by science. So the reason children stop believing in Santa Claus is because it's too precise. He comes down the chimney? How does he get down the chimney? It's, it's not vague enough. How do reindeer generate thrust and lift? It's ridiculous. Even if you know, an eight-year-old can figure that out. So there's, a, there's a, a, a reason why religious claims, and also kind of vague claims about spirituality get couched in terms that are inherently mysterious. In fact, it's, a, it's a part of many religious claims that it is a mystery, that you can't understand it, it's incomprehensible to humans and you shouldn't even bother trying. Um, okay, I think, well, I'm out of time, but uh, yeah, that's one page. We'll come back to the Q&A. Oh, we'll <laughs> come back to that. Okay. Okay, Very you. good. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's left as a, as a good um, stopping-off point then for Siobhan, uh, who I suppose has studied uh, religions, uh, the specifics and the generalities of what religions teach uh, it, it, from her own international um, experience and research. Um, Siobhan is Chair of Catholic Theology at the Loyola Institute here at Trinity College Dublin, the first holder of that position um, at this institution. Um, she's a feminist and ecumenical theologian whose work has addressed relationship between religious ritual and political problems. Um, she was previously based at the University of Exeter and in Yale in the United States, has been involved in working with homeless charities in various jurisdictions. And her latest book is The Real Peace Process, Worship, Politics and the End of Sectarianism on the political contribution the churches in Northern Ireland can make towards peace and reconciliation. Um, I think it's fair to say closer to the no side in this one as well. <laughs> so, Siobhan, thank you. Um, thanks, Joe, and thanks, Kevin. 
Um, so, the sort of religion uh, Dawkins and his ilk write about um, is in conflict with science um, for many of, of, of the reasons we've just heard. But then the, the sort of religion that Dawkins writes about is incompatible with much religion. His version is a misleading caricature. Most religions I know don't see God as a capricious old man in the sky who controls everything from our health to the weather. But it's not as simple as good religion or bad religion, acceptable religion, unacceptable religion by our post-scientific standards. They're all mixed. They have long histories. They're not membership clubs. They don't come with manifestos. They're changing all the time. So what is religion? Well, as has been said, um, to say it's varied is an understatement. To even identify it as a single phenomenon is something I find dubious at best. As an analogy, think of governance. Now think of all the governance systems in the world, constitutional democracies, monarchies, oligarchies, tyrants, autocrats, tribal elders, consensus makers. Now think of all the disagreements within those governance systems. Religion is even more complicated than that. As someone who studies it, I therefore have to limit my focus. It doesn't exist as a general thing. And I too, in my work, look mostly at Christianity, but I look mostly at practices uh, such as religious rituals. I do this because I've found the idea that religions should be understood through their beliefs as misleading. Misleading in our understanding of religion, that is. Many, if not most, religions have adherence because of their practices. Anyone who's studied ritual knows that what is prescribed to be said is often changed, maybe slightly, maybe quite a lot. So the belief that's meant to be expressed is altered in the practice. And more fundamentally, they know that what is said in any ritual is only a tiny fraction of what is going on in that ritual space. The propositional approach to religion, the making and defending of particular claims about beliefs, came to dominance in this part of the world only during the Enlightenment. But it's important to remember that that is only a small part of a much bigger picture. The Gospels don't tell Christians to believe in Jesus. They tell them to follow Jesus. And this is reflected in the religion I study. Take Catholicism, for example, in its Anglican or its Roman modes. The way you come to religion is that you're dunked in water, fed, inspired, oiled. Uh, you serve and heal and feed and touch and smell and sing and eat and listen and think and see and feel and tend and give and forgive. And then, and only then, do you make sense of it all. And that sense-making alters the course of your life. And a large part of what makes religion a positive or negative force is to do how you're guided in that process. Even when religion is accounted for in terms of beliefs, 
and of official church teachings, we only get a partial picture. For example, in the last 600, sorry, in the last 100 years, the Roman Catholic Church has issued a handful of documents on sexual matters and dozens on economic and environmental matters, but the, to my mind, horrible teachings on sexuality get almost daily attention, while the challenging teachings on curbing capitalism or protecting the environment get almost none. The thing last week was an exception. The latter are, by the way, a really fertile ground, as has been shown, for joint work between scientists and theologians, environmental scientists. Um, like many theologians, I see science and religion as compatible. But if they are to be seen as such and believed to be such by a wider public, then the public needs a much, much better access to information about religion. Most of the Christians I study see no conflict between science and religion. They take insulin and are grateful to science for it. They're also grateful to God for science. Not because God is somehow pulling the strings of science. No, theirs is a much more complicated and perhaps sophisticated idea of God and a much more difficult to express in words one than we encounter in Dawkins or the media. For these people, God is love is about as, as much as you usually get to say. Speech is a real problem around, around faith. Anyone who claims to know God absolutely or to know God's will is lying. What limited knowledge of God we might gain is fundamentally of a relationship, not an article of faith. It is primarily a matter of love, not of demonstration. So, as Aquinas had it nearly 800 years ago, faith has priority over reason in the way it arises, but that doesn't mean that reason is uh, irrelevant, not at all. It matters a great deal. Practices of love may be the primary feature of Christian religion in its conception, but articulating beliefs is nonetheless still vital. Beliefs, especially carefully reasoned, critically-minded, community-tested, kindly-worded beliefs, can help prevent Christian practices from falling into destructiveness. Some might say that you're not a Christian if, at a minimum, you don't believe what's in the creed. But my research has found many Christians who don't have a literal belief in what's in the creed at all times in their lives, but who love to say it every week anyway. I don't think this makes them less credible because they're they're evolving and it's operating at uh, multiple levels um, of their consciousness. The reasons they give are that it ties them to previous communities, going back a long time, it keeps them humble, and it makes them think. For some... The creed works like a song. Think of the songs you sing along with. You might not believe in or love all the words, but together they make up the song, so you sing the song. Or someone starts singing it, and you can sing the chorus without having to have interrogated every single little article in it. For example, the statement that God is all-powerful is taken to mean powerful in the ways that Jesus was powerful. 
illegitimate, poor, subversive, self-sacrificing, an alternative vision of power to the one that might be implied. For yet others, of course, every word is literally true. The greed happens in different ways. People can fully, sorry, Christians have complicated and rich understandings of beliefs. That's the main point. And thus of what it might mean to believe in God. People can fully accept the Big Bang and biological evolution and still find truth and satisfaction in biblical accounts, such as creating the world uh, or Noah rescuing it from the flood. As theologians, we might, of course, remark that they are believing in these things in different ways, that they are different sorts of truth claim. There isn't and there needn't be only a single source of truth claim, a sort of truth claim in the world. But to prioritize one over the other, to insist that the biblical narrative is relegated to a mere moral story and not functioning as a belief is to radically underestimate the power of all art, all symbol, or of language itself. All beliefs are mediated, and most are mediated by language. And I'm going to have to skip a bit because I'm really out of time. By cultural people... Um, are good examples of holding different beliefs in tension just as they hold different languages in common. Um, and that, that, the studies of bicultural people, such as the Irish in England in the 50s or of Mexicans in, in present-day um, America, um, are insights into the ways in which this co-location of uh, beliefs can happen and they're also reflections on who are we white people in the western world who want a singular narrative and only one sort of truth and only one way of talking as being valid when we interrogate questions like this so jumping to my conclusion uh, science and religion I think are not in in conflict necessarily While scientists can be people of faith, they don't have to be. However, the other way round, people of faith do well to become as conversant as possible with science. It helps them understand more accurately their worlds and their lives. And as a sacramental theologian, our world and our life is the primary place through which I think we have a grasp on religion. The only way we can recommend um, religion not being in conflict to scientists is if we get a much more complicated, much richer, and much more accurate account of religious life and religious practices into the public sphere than the one that's currently there. Thank you, Siobhan. Thanks, Siobhan. So we've had two scientists, a theologian, and now we're going to have a philosopher or a philosophizer. So no pressure, Cathy. You're representing a discipline (laughs) stretching back two and a half thousand years. Um, But Cathy herself is a philosophy graduate from Maynooth University and uh, runs a fantastic blog, irishphilosophy.com, 
Um, she set up the blog inspired by reading David Berman's Berkeley and, the Irish, and Irish Philosophy and further reading Richard Kearney and Thomas Duddy. And uh, she says, I quote, the motivation is to explore and celebrate the history of Irish thought on this island. Too often the Irish are seen by herself and others as emotional, artistic, but not intellectual. However, we do have a long and respectable history in philosophy and indeed science, she says. The Irish Philosophy Blog has made the shortlist for Blog of the Years for a number of years running and uh, is a terrific blog, as I say, and I recommend it to everyone. Uh, so over to you, Cathy. Great, thank you. All scientists should be militant atheists was a headline in The New Yorker last month over a piece by Lawrence M. Krauss. In it, Krauss said that science is an atheistical enterprise, and in that he's right. Science, science's roots go back to 6th century BC, where natural philosophers first started looking for naturalistic explanations for the changes that they saw in nature, rather than appealing to gods or the supernatural. By the 17th century, science proper had emerged, the systematic study of the natural world through observation and experiment. Part of this development involved the idea of the mechanistic universe. Robert Boyle argued that instead of seeing the world, uh, that we should see the world as a machine. He argued that the uh, Aristotelian, uh, sorry, that Aristotelian natural philosophy implicitly thought that the, the nature or the things in nature had a mind. So, for example, thing, falling objects were sent to be returning to their proper place, as if they somehow knew where they should go and when they got there. Nature was said to abhor a vacuum, as if nature had feelings about vacuums. So, Boyle said that we should instead see the parts of nature working together like clogs in a clock. And that science, instead of looking for overall purposes and the why explanations, should concentrate on how it worked, being specific and not vague. Okay. So, as Krauss says, belief or non-belief in God is irrelevant to our understanding of the workings of nature. Therefore, it is consistent for scientists not to be atheists when they're not doing uh, science. Boyle himself, despite putting forward the idea of a mechanistic universe, was a devout Christian who, put, who left money in his will for lectures to be made on science and religion. And there, as, as William has said, there's many other scientists who are religious, including the Irish Nobel Prize winner for physics, Ernest Walton. He personally said, scientists speak truth, Christians seek truth, and in the end, truth cannot conflict with truth, unknowingly echoing a Regina from the 19th century, or from the 9th century. But conflict can arise between religion. If religion demands you believe one truth, about nature, and science says you believe another. Take the example of Augustine, the early Christian theologian and philosopher. He was a Manichaean for nine years, and the Manichaeans had myths about eclipses and how the universe worked based on their concepts of good and evil, dualist universe. Augustine was well-versed in the natural philosophy of his time and had a conflict where he was forced to believe these myths even when the ideas did not correspond with or even contradicted the rational theories established by mathematics and my own eyes. So after spending time trying to find teachers who could reconcile these two, he ended up leaving the Manichaeans. He even suggested later on as a Christian that God had made Manichae do this in order to undermine himself. Who ordered Mani to write about these things, knowledge of which is not necessary to piety? which kind of 
casts an interesting light on New Earth creationism. But are science and religion conflict as enterprises? The conflict thesis was first formulated at the end of the 19th century, first suggesting that Roman Catholicism had held back natural philosophy in the Middle Ages, and then evolving to suggest Christianity as a whole had. And the theory now is probably best exemplified by a diagram you may have seen on the internet, where science knowledge increases through Greek and Roman times, then plunges into the abyss of the Middle Ages, only to clamber out through the Renaissance. And the tagline is, if it wasn't for Christianity, we would have colonies on Mars by now. However, this isn't exactly uh, agreed on by historians of science today. Um, Yes, a lot of knowledge was lost after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. However, as soon... As soon as basically stability had returned, you have the Carolingian court basically trying to gather together all the little scraps of knowledge from the whole of Western Europe. In the 10th and 11th century, as the Moors retreat from Spain, you have uh, as the Moors retreat from Spain, you have people rushing in to find the natural philosophy of Aristotle and of the Islamic world itself and translating that. And on that basis is built uh, work by uh, various philosophers on uh, inertia, um, suggesting that perhaps the world might be spinning on its axis, which is, was a, a new idea, and even asking why should we believe that the Earth is at the centre of the universe. And all of these built up to Copernicus's heliocentric theory. So that did not just suddenly appear out of nowhere, that what did build on medieval natural philosophy, because you can't really call it science at that point. However, it is true that there were conflicts during the Middle Ages between uh, the church and uh, natural philosophy. Now, everyone knows about Galileo, so I'm not going to talk about that. Instead, I'm going to give the example of the 13th century, where the Parisian theology faculty was disturbed by the philosophers using Aristotle, and they were concerned that some aspects conflicted with, uh, with uh, some aspects of Aristotelian philosophy conflicted with Christian theology. So in, in 1210, 1270, and 1277, there were condemnations issued saying various parts of Aristotle that you couldn't use in philosophy. Now, there is dispute, it's disputed how harmful this was. Um, But on the whole, uh, one argument is that it helped people to argue against Aristotle instead of taking him as read. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to have entirely worked that way in that people just tended to go, the example being, uh, for example, one uh, thing that wasn't allowed to be said was that God couldn't create a vacuum. So people tended to say, yes, God could create a vacuum, but in fact he didn't which is why it was still an idea current in the 17th century for Robert Boyle to dispute. So insofar as uh, there were also negative effects in that it seemed to cast suspicion on the philosophy department, which took a while to disperse. Now, if this was only local, it was only in Paris, but there was not entirely positive effects from it. And the positive effects there were stemmed purely from increasing the questioning that people were doing. And that seems to me to be key, that the important thing is not shutting down questioning. 
if we go to modern times, we can look at the Soviet Union, where they shut down biology by saying Darwinism was not to be studied, and instead in using Lyshenkoism, which is a non-scientific theory based on the idea that there is cooperation in nature and that things will naturally change from basically one species to another. They argued that rye would become wheat and wheat could come, become barley. Not only did they uh, kill scientists who, who would not adhere to the orthodoxy, it also had a negative effect on agriculture at the time. So once again, we can see that shutting down questioning had serious negative effects. What this kind of leads through to the Soviet Union also shut down religion. It also shut down philosophy. And we're kind of... I, where my key issue is with this question, are science and religion really in conflict? Probably comes from my interest in philosophy. That the very question tends to focus people on an either-or. You have two different spheres and only two spheres. You have science and you have religion. And that's it. So I have occasionally had debates where I'm discussing ethics and people seem to sometimes think that if I'm saying science cannot determine ethics, that therefore I must be saying religion is the only thing that can determine ethics because they are the only two viable possibilities. Whereas in fact, science and religion have interacted. Boyle's lectures were attempting to use science to bolster religion. Darwin's theory of evolution actually drew on Paley, among other things, who was a natural theologian. So the real issue to me is the conflict, where a conflict occurs, it happens when questioning is shut down, and that is the major priority. And Krauss has said that he thinks that science gives us an ethics for, civil, for civil, civic life where we question things, where we don't just think, take things for granted. Now, that works in science because you can interrogate the universe, you can do experiments to find out uh, what is the truth. There isn't any kind of arbitrator like that in civil society. So we have interminable debates. We have people who lie, we have people who manipulate, we have people who deceive. This is a problem. However, I don't think there is any way of avoiding that. Unfortunately, we're stuck with it. I think if we try and protect science by preventing that kind of questioning, we risk turning that on science itself, just as happened in the USSR. So, in, to close, religion and science can come into conflict. They can come into conflict when questioning is shut down and when ideas are imposed, and that affects everything, not just religion, not just science, but philosophy, history, and all modes of thought. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks very much. Um, and really to all four of you, it, very interesting, different takes on, on the same question. That, that can very easily happen coming from two perspectives. Um, I suppose to jump in and maybe to take up one of the challenges, perhaps, to come back to you, William, uh, initially. Um, Kevin threw down around... Uh, the retreat that he implies that religion is in now uh, to science, that uh, to avoid the conflict with science, 
religion has to effectively subordinate itself to science. It has to respond to whatever the latest scientific discovery is, change its doctrine, next thing comes out, has to change again. And it's stuck in this cycle of revision and being led, if you like, by science, um, which is very, a very different sort of type of religion to the way people of faith would tend to believe, where they believe their, their faith is a, is a fixed article of belief. The... Um I would um, see that not as um, retreat and weakness, but um, something that religion uh, should be applauded for. When science comes up with a new uh, demonstration of how this or that part of the natural world works, <clears throat> it is a tribute to um, religion when it agrees with it. Uh, the fact that it may... Uh, resist it for a short period is just human nature. When Darwin proposed his theory, not only did, did that shock uh, the, the Christian church, it shocked many scientists. Many, many scientists did not agree with it. Uh, for example, Lord Kelvin. You don't get bigger than that. Um, and these people had to be persuaded eventually to, to agree. Now, it did shock the, the Christian churches, but mainline Christianity fairly quickly came to terms uh, with, with the uh, theory of evolution um, through natural selection. So this isn't the, the church in retreat. This is uh, a remnant or a, a relic or an echo from pre-scientific times where the church was interpreting the natural world in a way that it shouldn't have been. But many things shouldn't have been back then. Uh, somebody was talking about all the different um, political systems and the legal systems. Uh, in, in 1600, if you damaged a shrub in, in a garden in, uh, in London and you were caught, the, the, uh, the sentence was death. This wasn't the church prescribing that. Things were very different, so we should not be interpreting uh, things that happened hundreds of years ago in terms of today's standards. What do you make of that, Siobhan, maybe, just to take that up? Because looking at it, I mean, there's two angles to this, this question. There's the empirical one about actual visible conflict between science, scientists and people of faith, and then there's the theoretical one, whether there's a fundamental difference there. But um, does science weaken faith in the sense that the spread of science through society, mm. scientific knowledge, does it weaken um, faith within societies? And, and then looking at the theoretical issue, does it... You know, the famous comment from Stephen Weinberg, the more the world seems intelligible, the more it seems pointless. There is that um, existential, or, or th there is that effect as well uh, that perhaps it, it feeds into that on the theoretical side. Um, well, I think in, in response to the first one and to, to what you were just saying, I think anybody who... Um, I think positing fixity as a necessary condition of religion is unwise and unevidenced. I mean, yes, we can think of examples of religions that have insisted on fixity, but we, there are many, many others as well. And to take um, a non-Christian example, uh, the, um, in Islam, beyond belief in God and the articles and the five um, commands, which are actually practices to pray every day, to give alms, to go to Mecca, etc., it is taught that all the rest are open to change. That's hugely misunderstood. And so when we come to Christianity, um, I think, yeah, I think there's a flaw in the idea 
that it is fixed and will somehow have to cede something or lose something or be diminished in some way. Any Christian who thinks they're going to get certainty through adherence to that faith is going to be bitterly disappointed after a few decades of trying to practice it. Not initially, grand, but try them in 30 years' time. It, is, it doesn't promote fixity um, any more than Islam does, just to, give, just to give two examples. And then the existential uh, aspect of what you say. As I said, I... I and as Dar- you know, Darwin said, he, he, he saw nothing in his work that could threaten a, a, a holy person, as he put it, a person of faith. Nothing. Because a person of faith, rather than somebody who is enslaved to, for all sorts of reasons, to some you know, horrible system, but a person of faith is... In most religions, and I know I said I wouldn't generalize, but here I go, in, in many religions, is, is commanded to question, to grow, to integrate what goes on in their world. They, they, they can't exist in a vacuum. They're born in a world. They're born in a culture. All religions are culturally mediated. In Christianity, as that world is understood, to use Christian language, the world is understood as a sacramental reality, as giving of information of God, but not exclusively. You know, it's, it's, not, com- it's not conflictual with a scientific view of the world, which is why so many scientists are Christian and what other, and of other religions. Kevin, what do you think of that? Non-overlapping magisterium. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting question. It's a kind of a, it's a, kind of a get-out clause for, for what otherwise might uh, induce... Um, cognitive dissonance if, if you're you know, a scientist who's used to, to using evidence to formulate uh, beliefs and test them uh, versus uh, someone who has, has faith in a religious system. However you define that, and it, it can apparently get less and less defined until it amounts to a social club uh, with some sort of vague notions, that, that certainly doesn't... Um, I, I, I guess that sounds like a very academic... Um, definition of, of religion to me, one that doesn't necessarily fit with my own, uh, with my own experience. That's a very inaccurate portrayal of what I said, a social club with some vague notions. But that, that was certainly the message that, that I got, yeah. So um, all, all religions but, have to have faith, have to have a set of beliefs and make sure that all their adherents stick to it, and if they're not, they're out and they're cast down. No, but really, certainly, that's all certainly that some, gets to some, be? some aspect of And if it's not, belief, it's a social club with vaguey-wagey things? Well, some aspect of belief seems to be a defining uh, requirement for religion, I would think, yes. But why are you... Okay. But it, well, anyway, the, the larger point of, of this... Uh, idea that religion and science uh, deal with with completely separate things hinges on this notion that there are that, that there exists the supernatural that that's a thing that that there just is a natural universe with physical laws and there's a supernatural universe a kind of a parallel reality but that that to me that's a fundamentally incoherent concept if something is supernatural if it's not uh, you know it doesn't exist in the universe well, then it doesn't exist in the universe. And if it does exist in the universe and it interacts with the physical world in, in some way, then, it, then, then it's natural. It's like you know, artif- alternative medicine that's been proven to work. It's just called medicine. So, so, so supernatural things 
it's, it's a kind of a mysterious term that by definition excludes its own existence to me. And, um, and so you can, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a label that you can put on our ignorance. You say something, well, I don't understand that, well, that's, that's supernatural. So I was, but, uh, sorry, just I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but I'm just going to have to work a miracle. <laughs> Give me some water. <laughs> uh, bring Kathy back in, maybe on that point, because uh, not a miracles, but um, I take wine now. You, <laughs> go for it. Um, but this question, I suppose, it's it's of narrowing inquiry. I mean, I don't know. Would you take issue with Kevin in terms of the? Uh, scope of valid inquiry. It's a bit like Wittgenstein saying, you know, where if we cannot speak, we must stay silent. And then Wittgenstein said, well, actually, all the things we have to stay silent about are the really interesting things. So we have to talk about these things, about meaning, about values, and, and have a discussion, and religion is part of that uh, language that we mm. use. So it, 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 would, you, would you have a, a take issue to some degree? Um, I, well, yes, to some degree, in that... Um, not so much necessarily, I mean, the supernatural, I'm kind of going to bracket all of that, but uh, I don't think that you have to say, I'm a scientist, therefore I will think scientifically all the time. I don't think it's actually possible, and I don't, not really, don't really think you're suggesting that. Um, but, I mean, there has to be other ways of looking at the world, like religion is one of them, and, but there are plenty of others, and the only da- as I say, the only danger with this conversation is that we kind of start to look at these two things as if there are only two. So you have like art interacting with science here. You have uh, kind of religion has an interact with science. You have, you know, I, I just think it is kind of more permeable and more uncertain and more in flux than sometimes this debate makes it seem. You know, like it just feel like it's kind of getting religion versus science, whereas it's an awful lot more complicated than that, I suppose. Um, I hope I'm building on it accurately, but I want to build on that and go back to your comment about vagueness, which you also made in your own remarks uh, when you were talking about precision, that you complained that there were about Christians who then become so vague in their notions that when you drill down, they can't even say what God is about, as if there was... um, a scientific method that could be applied to all, fun, all things, which, if, the, if you can't satisfy that, then you're vague, then you've, you've failed a fundamental test. And I am, because my, my, part of my approach to this is to insist that from, in Christianity, we're talking about relationships in Buddhism, we're talking about other things, we're not talking about the supernatural at all. But in, in Christianity... If I were to ask you to, I see you're wearing a ring, to tell me what is the love that you have between yourself and your partner, or what is it about your partner um, that makes him or her lovable or beautiful, could you do it? Could we drill down to... Because that to me brings out the fact that the relationship that is at the heart of Christianity is a relationship. Mm. And it's all our relationships, all our, for me, and if you ask me about a, 
about such relationships in my life, I'd find it awfully hard whether whether they were here or not. Yeah, I agree. Well, and, and, <laughs> and that's the analogy, really, yeah. rather than the object to yeah. be so, very so, tested. Well, I mean, it reminds me of a. And it's not vague. You wouldn't yeah. be being vague no, if no, you no, said, no, "I love her right. very much." It reminds me of a joke, um, you know, about a, a farmer in Maine and mm. asks his friend, uh, "How's your wife, Jeb?" Mm. And he says, "Compared to what?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to leave that one there. But, um, but I think, so, so you're right. And I think this, I, I mean, a lot of the speakers actually have touched on a point where science does fail at a certain point, And our scientific traditions have gotten extremely reductionist and extremely materialistic in a way that makes, us, makes it sound like scientists think that all um, aspects of life can be reduced to interactions between the tiny components of, of systems, which is, is certainly one way that, that science makes progress by studying a system, thinking what are the components, how do they work together, how can I understand that system, and it's been extraordinarily powerful. And actually, there's a, a tradition in science going back to Francis Bacon, who, who basically said that thinking about anything else beyond that, thinking about meaning or purpose or values, is inherently unscientific. And they've been, you know, why questions have been kind of ruled out as being unscientific in our, in our traditions. I don't think that has to be the case at all. If you think about, um, you know, you had the, the example earlier about the, the kettle, why is the, why is the water boiling? It's absolutely perfectly valid scientific explanation to say the water's boiling because you wanted a cup of tea. Okay? That, that isn't a non-scientific point of view, and you can talk about humanity, you can talk about souls, for example, if you like to use that word, as a perfectly good descriptor of everything about, say, everything about me that constitutes the, what it's like to be me. Now, that sounds unscientific, but you can approach it in a scientific way if you define it in, in the appropriate way. You don't have to think necessarily that just because this complicated system here uh, has emergent properties and consciousness and a sense of self, you don't have to think that that therefore is evidence, just because we don't understand it now, that it's inherently un unexplainable in principle and that must therefore be evidence of something supernatural or, or even couched in you know, spiritual terms, which, like I said, are so vague that they don't actually get you anywhere. So I don't think there are aspects of human experience that are necessarily out of uh, the reach of science, as long as you define something about them in a way that's precise enough that you can form a scientific question about it. Kathy, uh, yeah, maybe uh, first there. Yeah. Um, if William is making his cup of tea, and, you know, why is, the, why is the water boiling because William wanted a cup of tea? I don't... I can see how we can say that might be through reason. I'm not quite sure how it's a scientific statement... So well, could you, can, you clarify? Sure. I mean, it's the basis of, of psychology is, is looking at people's motives. Why did he want a cup of tea? Or physiology, he was, he was thirsty. So you can, ask, you, can, you can ask perfectly scientific questions about that. You can ask about his intentions, his goals, his beliefs, his desires in a scientific fashion. And you can interrogate the subject and ask them what it is that they were thinking about. So you can define a, a hypothesis. My hypothesis might be he wanted a cup of tea because he was thirsty. And maybe he I was, just kind and of maybe feel he wasn't. It's slightly, you know, 
I mean, you know, people talk about science creep, but I think if, I have to, if I'm asking William why he put the kettle on and he says, I wanted a cup of tea, and we're calling that science, is that not slightly expanding the word science to kind of include everything? Well, the method can be applied to any question you'd like if it's, as I said, defined in a scientific way. So why did he want a cup of tea is not a scientific question. The hypothesis mm. that he wanted a cup of tea because he was thirsty is a scientific question. So that's what I'm saying. If you phrase things in the right way, um, then you can approach that. And unfortunately, the frustrations, I think, that people have with science is because the tradition has been so reductionist and because why questions were ruled off limits mm. that uh, actually we haven't fully engaged with those things in the way that we probably need to. Willie, do you want to come back in on that very quickly? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I was just thinking there about the, the cup of tea business. Um, <laughs> the, um, I, I see where Kevin is coming from, and really I think what you're saying is uh, because there seems to be a rational reason about why the cup of tea uh, would be desirable, that uh, that could be considered to be a part of science. But I don't think it's as simple as that because I presume you're a materialist. <laughs> Nothing exists but matter and energy. Well, uh, yes. Yes. I, to a certain extent, in yeah. that I think, you, you know, not just necessarily, you know, reducing it to things to atoms. I yeah. consider things, you yeah, know, systems they're, they're of matter and energy have emergent and, yeah, properties. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, you see, there's a terrible uh, temptation t in materialism to, to rub out free will. And that, the problem then is, why do I want a cup of tea? You know, I'm, th th that decision is being made for me. I'm not freely making it. And everything has to be... Materialism finds great difficulty in uh, accommodating free will. But there are lots of areas science can't, that I'm aware of, talk about. The, the question of how you fell in love with your wife and all of that. You could not describe that in scientific terms. Um, sure you could. Yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> well, you can have a go at it because that's. As it happens, it was in science class. So that was. I don't mean mechanically how you did it, but how <laughs> emotionally. <laughs> or, nor could you describe in scientific terms um, uh, the beauty of um, a scene. Uh, you could describe the scene in technical terms, but you couldn't. You couldn't get this uh, across. There are there are many things. Science is very good where it's very good. And it doesn't go in other, in other areas. And it shouldn't even want to go there because the whole reason why science has been so successful is it only asks questions it knows it can answer. It's the only discipline in the universe that has that criterion. Imagine if politicians had it. Uh, okay. So it's only I mean, science that has that. that. If it goes into these other areas, yeah. it gets messy. We, I think we're going to throw it open to some questions. I'm sure people are keen to get in as well on this. Um, so I think we have two roving mics, or at least one, if Janet is up there. and we do, two people. So if anyone wants to put their hands up uh, to, to ask a question, um, maybe keep it to a question, or if you want to make a comment, keep it very succinct, because uh, it's already quarter past eight now, and um, want to get a bit more debate going as well. So if you want to shoot up a hand, anyone there? There's the one light. there at the back can there in the white. Pardon? Can we get the lights on? Yeah, you can... Well, I think we're okay. Oh, yeah, I think they need I it for ask. the... Yeah. Um, okay. Yep, sorry, ahead. I just have one question which I think directly follows on from the way in which the debate has evolved, which is this question, 
do the nose or the, um, the, the kind of half nose or full nose, mm. do you believe that there could ever be a situation where there could be a complete explanation for all feelings, thoughts, belief systems, so where you could have a total understanding of the correlation between mind states and brain states? So do all the no's rule that out as a possibility? And if you don't rule it out as a hypothetical possibility, because I think it's a powerful hypothesis, do the no's believe that religion could survive that? Where, irrespective of how complex your mind state was, your belief system, that the scientist in the middle could say, well, I can explain that in terms of brain states. I can show the reactions, the electrical impulses that led you to have that thought. So there's two parts of the question. One is, do you rule that out as a hypothetical possibility that science could just never get there? And then if you admit of it as a possibility, would that leave religion untouched or could religion survive that yeah. level of scientific understanding? So do you want to, I'm not sure maybe, do you want to have a go with that? I mean, in terms of is it, science or sort of religion depends upon questions not being answered in a sense because if everything got answered, sort of religion would disappear. I mean, that's maybe superficial summary of that. Well, the way I defined um, science, uh, it couldn't ever do that um, because uh, it, it, there are things that um, are just in a different category, and it's not science's job to... to, to. But if you're a materialist, uh, you do have to conclude that everything that exists could eventually, in principle anyway, have a materialistic explanation. So if, if you're a materialist, and I'm not, um, the answer to, is that such a thing is, is conceivable in principle. Uh, whether you'd ever get there or not, but you could go a long way towards it. But I don't. But I w wouldn't go with that. I might take a couple more questions. So then, I people behind there, yeah, just with your hand up there now in the white um, cardigan. Um, you've kind of all brought up the kind of nebulous area between science and religion, and the point where science hasn't got an explanation yet, um, and religion does, and this kind of come up this conflict between science and religion. Do you think the kind of media idea of science and religion is human beings have a tendency to prefer simple explanations, kind of black and white religion and science, no kind of room for philosophy or a religious uh, scientist or a, scientific, or a scientific approach to religion. Uh, do you think it's... Um, do you think that that um, idea of science and religion coming into conflict is more about our tendency to prefer black and white, or do you think it's uh, something to do more with a person taking a very... Kind of the people who tend to speak up more about something are people who have very black and white views? Yeah. Um. That's almost directed at me, and I think probably for the media, you're probably right. We tend to deal in black and white an awful lot. Um, having said that, I mean, there's a broader question there maybe around social media as well. I don't know whether Cathy or, or Siobhan has a view on that, or possibly around um, that forum, that medium, is one that does project people into categories very quickly, and, that, and that's kind of starting to define uh, public debate a bit more these days. Well... Social media, I mean, you have academics on social media, so you have very complicated and kind of nuanced conversations on social media, and you also have the very black and white 
uh, for and against kind of thing in social media. And you can also have the, I will categorise you and then I will know all your opinions and I can either dismiss you or I am on your side, which is also very unhealthy. Um, as for the kind of broader picture about the black and white uh, Yes, I suppose it is. It's a simple narrative, and it's an interesting narrative. Conflict is always interesting, whereas kind of a wishy-washy, well, it's a bit of this and it's a bit of that, like I pervade, isn't as interesting, isn't as sexy, if you like. So I think that is an aspect of, of why this debate has kind of become so big. Yeah, I, I just uh, I agree with that point. It's because of the conflict. It makes it into the media. Conflict sells, sex sells. Go on media training courses. This is what you've lear- you learn. If you want to get a point across, you've either got to you've got to fit it into those categories. So yeah, I prefer conflict. Um, th- there has been hope for the sort of angle I gave uh, from things like uh, Facebook and Twitter, where f- where. Uh, religion that never normally makes it onto people's screen, just ordinary uh, housewife, househusband religion, grassroots religion, not what the Pope says, that has no problem making it in, but that's what the Pope says. That's not necessarily religious practices. So, for example, um, the protests at Ferguson, nearly all of which were led by various forms of clergy of many different faiths, was a fantastic example of incredibly complicated representations of religion and how the rubber hits the road uh, between religion and people's ordinary lives. And I, I'm hoping for more of that. Have you any up there in the corner? I'm just wondering why everyone is so well behaved. Uh, <laughs> and I can't, I really can't understand why you know, the simple fact has not been stated that science is fundamentally about knowledge and asking every question and religion is fundamentally about ignorance and not <laughs> asking questions and only Williams in a strange world where things are compartmentalized into science and religion and have to be completely separated will, that's the only place where religion can exist where questions aren't asked. Okay. We might take that more as a comment. Uh, <coughs> the question. Any other? Um, but thanks for your contribution. Uh, one, one down here. Sorry. Um, yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah, maybe take in the back, uh, Janet, sorry, on the way down first there, since you're on the way. In the middle there, the red jacket, yeah, the red shirt. Hi. Um, yeah, I've been reading a little bit, I'm not a scientist, about singularity or the singularity. Um, and as far as I understand it, this is about the idea of neuroscience and robotics and artificial intelligence coming together in the near future to form an intelligence uh, and a cognitive approach to things which will answer all these questions for us. Um, This coming together reminds me of the language of religion where we will all become one in Christ and so on. So... What, what have the panel got to say about perhaps Kevin would be the person here I don't know to say something about this uh, it, it's, it's a really interesting idea it comes back to the, to the first question that we had actually and also to uh, William's comment about free will it's, it's sort of funny that many of the um, scientists who are proposing or, you know, the idea of the singularity that we'll, we'll very shortly have designed a, an artificial intelligence which develops its own consciousness and 
and develops a sense of agency and free will, it, those same people actually seem to deny the, that humans have free will based on a, a, a sort of illogical extension of neuroscientific materialism, which gets to the, the first question about the idea of whether, uh, you know, if I can explain everything that's going on in my brain or in my mind uh, on the basis of everything that's going on in my brain, then have I explained away everything? Have I explained away all the human values and emotions uh, and so on? I actually don't agree with that. And it's a strange um, situation that uh, neuro neuroscience has painted itself into a corner in a way. The more that we learn about how nerve cells communicate with each other, about how the brain is wired up, how, uh, how circuits represent information and, and process that information, the further and further we get away from what should be really our goal, which is to understand how that gives rise to the mind. And in many ways, a lot of neuroscientists dismiss consciousness as, a, as an epiphenomenon, like it doesn't do any work. And I think that's a philosophically uh, a mistake, because you can have a system that is realized by a certain physical state, but that's not reducible to that state. That's a little bit slightly um, subtle philosophical point. But, but you, you can have a system where you have two things going on. There's a how question. How did I just utter these words? And the answer to that is a mechanistic one about the, the atoms and electrons and, and molecules in my brain. And that can give a full, complete explanation of how. But you can have a why question that's a perfectly valid scientific question, and that relates to my intentions and beliefs, the way that I interpreted uh, the question, what I uh, you know, knew about before, and what my opinion is. Those two things are not in conflict with each other. One of them doesn't rule out the other one. The basic neuroscientific explanation doesn't preclude an intentional belief explanation at the same time. And uh, part of the reason for that, coming back to free will, is because the universe is not deterministic. There's enough randomness in there that means that there's some causal slack in the system so that our intentions and beliefs, the meaning of our brain states, has causal power in inducing the subsequent brain states. That's got, got a bit. Thanks. Take another one here. Uh, can I just add one yeah. thing, which is uh, my past life was in IT, and anyone who says the singularity is happening within the next 50 years, that is definitely a faith position, okay? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Uh, thanks, Joe, very much, and the panel as well for the debate. And uh, congratulations to Joe for the book as well. Um, I just have a question for Kevin about the area of neuroscience. It's slightly related to the last question, really. Um, what does neuroscience have to say about the experience, experiences that millions of people have of spirituality or some kind of transcendence or what William referred to as the hidden feeling of hidden God? And to William, if neuroscience was able to explain those sorts of feelings, what difference would that make, if any, to religious belief? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the, one of the um, pieces of evidence that people give that religion must be true is that they... In, in some cases all the time, or in other cases just occasionally, have an incredibly strong feeling that it must be true. So they're having some kind of a transcendental or mystical experience. Um, now, first of all, I would say that, you know, that, that sort of argument from, from introspection and from our intuitions doesn't actually get us very far because uh, you know, mo a lot of psychology these days is about explaining why we don't have very good access to what's going on in our brains. But in any case, whatever we feel about something is not a statement about the universe. It's just a statement about us. 
Um, now, as it happens, many of those kinds of, of mystical experiences can be induced by things like seizures, hallucinogenic drugs, brain tumors, uh, you know, and the, uh, or even uh, you know, direct, direct <laughs> electrical stimulation of a certain part of the brain. So the fact that you are in that mental state, which reflects a certain brain state, is a very local fact. It doesn't really say what that brain state you know, the, the brain state doesn't signify anything about the universe except for the fact that maybe I'm sticking an electrode in your head at the time. So um, I, don't, I don't see it as a, as a point of evidence. Very good. Lynn, do you want yeah, to pick up on I that? I think um, if um, the question was if, if neuroscience could um, explain the spiritual experience, but it would depend on what the explanation was. I mean, at the, what happens, tends to happen now is there was a study done of several nuns uh, who did a lot of meditation and had spiritual experiences uh, were monitored. And um, when they were having these experiences, they would, signal, they would signal it, and different parts of their brains reliably lit up. And the nuns were delighted when they heard this. They thought how um, orderly God was working. You know, it wasn't just a... But that isn't really explaining away the spiritual state. It's just, this is the substratum through which this spiritual state is being uh, experienced. It doesn't explain it away, it's just interesting, you know. Very good. We have time maybe for two very quick questions, maybe, if anyone wants to get in the last one, or um, do I see any hands? No, I'll, I'll get one here, then uh, thanks. Good evening. Uh, Conflict between science and religion, in particular for the last 18 months, has been really strong in my mind because as a result of a, an event in our family uh, brought up in Mayo, west of Ireland, strong influence of the Catholic Church. I moved to France, had my three kids, educating them very much alone because of the difference in culture, etc. I would have asked lots of questions. And then 18 months ago, um, I was speaking to my nephew on the day of the christening of his child, a busy young man, and asked me if he could come to France on holiday. I said yes, and then we said goodbye. And as I was putting the phone down, a very strong question floated through my mind. I had a feeling that something was going to happen, and the question that I did not look for, but that came floating through my mind was, is this crash going to happen before the holiday or after? And then 10 days later, a call for my daughter to tell me that he'd been killed in a crash that morning. It was a, a, a terrible shock. It was, I felt, how do I explain this? Where did that question come from? Why was it so strong in my mind as I spoke to him or as I just had spoken to him? And had it something got to do with science, religion? I don't know. It's, it's a very, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sure as, as we all are. I mean, um, I don't know I mean, whether anyone's have a go with that uh, in terms of responding to that question. I would only respond by saying I'm, I'm terribly sorry for y your loss. And I think it's a really compelling question. I don't have a, as a, someone who studies religion and as a theologian, I don't have an adequate answer to it. But what little... I have read in science, and I come from a family of scientists, um, 
I know that we are, and maybe you could answer this much better than me from the scientific point of view, science, I think, has some insight into that. We are neurologically wired in such a way that we are profoundly connected. And maybe if it's not understood yes, yet, to go back to the first question, I, it's one of the things I hope science will help us understand. We are much, much more profoundly connected than we give credence to. And you think of the uh, native religions in this culture that lived on in syncretization but officially uh, told off or eliminated by Catholicism. There was a lot of intuition and uh, foresight. And the people who did it didn't think that they were doing anything weird or wacky. It was, it was accepted as part of being human. And um, we, we tend to think that we're quite self-oriented and isolated but my hunch is we are profoundly connected in ways we don't fully understand which I hope can be better understood in the future Thanks Vaughan Okay, well look, I think we better leave it at that because it's gone past half and uh, it just remains for me to say to thank um, four panellists here uh, we mightn't have got to a, a neat conclusion but that's the nature of this but I think we've, we've shed a lot of light and it's been very interesting engaging and certainly sparked in my own mind a number of avenues of thought um, I, I want to thank just the, um, the science gallery here, uh, Jesse, who's been on duty this evening, um, our own Declan Connell, who's been, who's been operating and, and, um, video, and we'll be doing a podcast on this to be broadcast uh, next week on, on the Irish Times website on our off-topic off slot. Um, and just a few people to thank on a personal level with the unthinkable project within the newspaper, uh, editor Kevin O'Sullivan, who was here earlier, um, Deirdre Falvey has, has well, also been very supportive, um, Michael Ruan and uh, Dervla Kelly, who's here, Dervla, who's been involved in designing and illustrating this book, and really uh, talented designer, and delighted that she was involved in the project, has made a great uh, product at the end of the day. Um, and uh, Janet Stafford as well, who uh, is responsible for so many things, including tonight's uh, debate in the Irish Times that wouldn't happen if it weren't for her. So I want to thank all them personally. Uh, and again, thank the guests and thank you. And maybe just to finish up, I know it's not a strict debating format, but we might end with a yay or an aid to this particular question. Uh, so it, all those who think that uh, science and religion are in conflict say yay. All those who think science and religion are not in conflict say nay. I think the nays have it. (laughs) So thank you very much. (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.